pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now speak to us through the preaching of your holy word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand and receive your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to our sermon text, continuing in 1 John. We come to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 tonight. In the Pew Bibles, page 1,023. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we come to the final chapter of John's first letter, and as we've worked our way through the letter, we've seen that he returns to some of the same themes again and again. His purpose in writing has been to encourage the church in three main areas of the Christian faith, true doctrine, faithful obedience, and true love, both for God and for one another. His focus at the end of chapter four was on love and obedience, And here, as he builds to the conclusion of his letter, he re-emphasizes that third element, faith. And he weaves these three emphases together into a tightly woven tapestry. In a piece of woven fabric, the yarns are interlocked in such a way that you cannot remove one without affecting all the others. And in the same way, John shows us in these verses that you cannot remove any one of the key characteristics of a true believer. They are inseparably interwoven, interdependent. John's goal is to encourage believers to be faithful in all three of these areas so that they might grow in their assurance of salvation. He also continues to speak here of believers as those who are born again, born of God. So I think it's appropriate to look at these three marks of the true believer this evening under the metaphor of three birthmarks. A birthmark is a mark or a discoloration on the skin that sets a person apart as unique from their birth. But John here is saying that every Christian, everyone who is truly, sorry about this, everyone who is truly born again uh, bears these same three birthmarks. They're evident in the lives of every believer. And so as you see these birthmarks in your life, as you grow in them, you also grow in the certain knowledge that you have been born again to eternal life. So this evening we'll look first at the three interwoven birthmarks in verses 1 through 3, faith, love, and obedience. And then in verses 4 and 5, we'll look at the effects of that first birthmark, faith, and how through faith we overcome the world. First, we have the birthmark of faith, specifically faith that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 1a, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
Notice first that this statement is in the past tense, has been born of God. This indicates that a person's faith does not cause them to be born again. Rather, the order is reversed. God, by a sovereign act of his power, grants the new birth and the gift of faith. It's true, you are the one who exercises faith, but even your faith comes from God when he grants you that new birth. Therefore, faith in Christ is an indication that you have already been born again, born of God. Notice second, the content of this faith. Everyone who believes what? Believes that Jesus is the Christ. We might be so accustomed to that language of Jesus Christ that we read right over it, but this is a statement loaded with content. Christ is not just Jesus' last name. It is his title. It is his office. The word Christ in Greek means the anointed one. It's equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, also meaning anointed one. And so when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you are saying he is the long-awaited, the promised Messiah come to rescue his people from their sins. You're also saying that he holds all three anointed mediatorial offices that we see in the Old Testament. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the anointed prophet, anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure to declare faithfully the word of God. He is also the anointed priest who offers himself as the perfect final sacrifice to redeem us from our sins and who now, raised and ascended, serves as our eternal high priest at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us. And he is also the anointed king who rules over not only his kingdom, the church, through his word and spirit, but who will return as the all-conquering king. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All this is included in that simple yet profound confession of faith. Jesus is the Christ. Of course, this isn't the only doctrine that John has taught is crucial for believers. He has previously highlighted the main problem with these false teachers, these antichrists who had seceded from the church that he was writing to, was that they had a wrong doctrine of Christ in several different ways. In 2.23, he writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He also points out how they were denying not only that Jesus is the Christ, but they also deny that he had truly come in the flesh. It's a topic he'll return to in the very next section of chapter 5, which we'll look at next time. In contrast to these antichrists, John puts an emphasis on a true faith that embraces the apostolic teaching of the gospel with a full-fledged theology of Jesus, the Christ who came in the flesh, the Son of God. This is the first birthmark of the believer faith in Jesus, the Christ. And we come to the second birthmark, love. Verse 1b, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John's language here is interesting. A, a more literal translation would be everyone who loves the one who begets also loves those begotten of him. If you love the Father, you will also love those he loves, his other children. 
In one sense, you might see this as a proverbial statement, simply describing the world. It's natural that a child would also love his father's other children, his siblings. And John isn't just giving this as a proverbial wisdom statement here. He is applying it to the church. Just as a child loves his siblings, so Christians who are born of God must love their brothers and sisters in Christ who are also born again of the same heavenly father. John already made this point in length in chapter 4, which we've looked at. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Then at the end of chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When pastor in his sermon told the story of a time when his older brother gave his father a great big hug, and at the same time he was standing behind his dad and his brother over his father's shoulder so the father couldn't see, stuck out his tongue at him. He was simultaneously expressing his love for his father with his big hug and his disdain for his brother. This ought not to be. You may be able to do this behind the back of a human father, but of course nothing is done behind the back of your heavenly father. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But how can John say that this is a birthmark of the Christian, that every Christian does this? It must be that this love is a gift, just like the gift of faith. The same God who gives you a new heart to believe in Christ also gives you a heart that responds to his love with a reciprocal love for God and also a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also see that just like faith, a gift of God, Faith must be cultivated. This love also must be cultivated. We must grow into what we have received, who we have become in Christ. And so we must grow in our love for God and for one another. God is simply stressing how contradictory it is to love God and not love his other children. So that's the second birthmark of a believer, love for God and for all God's children. Then we come to the third birthmark in verse 2, the birthmark of obedience. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Many have pointed out that John seems to be falling into the logical error of circular reasoning in this verse. Didn't he just say at the end of chapter 4 that we show our love for God by loving our brothers and sisters? And now he's saying it the other way around. We know that we love the children of God when we love God. Which is it? I think John's point here is to highlight the interwoven nature of all these birthmarks. You cannot separate love for God from love for his children. The two must go together. Calvin highlights the dynamic of how this works in his commentary. He writes, John briefly shows in these words what true love is, even that which is towards God. He has hitherto taught us that there is never a true love to God except when our brethren are also loved, for this is ever its effect. But he now teaches us that men are rightly and duly loved when God holds 
the primacy. And it is a necessary definition. For it often happens that we love men apart from God, as unholy and carnal friendships regard only private advantages or some other vanishing objects. As then he has referred first to the effect, so he now refers to the cause. For his purpose is to show that mutual love ought to be in such a way cultivated that God may be honored. His point here is that we must love God and therefore love our brothers as God has required, as God has defined love. And in this way, we show our love for God. We cannot separate love from God from love for his children. And then he goes on, he adds to this, you cannot separate this love from obedience to his commands. And John has highlighted multiple times how these are, are, are interwoven because one of his commands is that you love one another just as Christ has loved you. You see that same pattern, love for God and love for others in the two parts of the Ten Commandments. You also can't separate obedience to his commands from that other birthmark, faith. Because Jesus commands us in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Of course, you remember the central message that Jesus preached from the very beginning of his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1, 15. This is a command that must be obeyed, a command to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see that love and faith can both be seen through the lens of obedience to God's commandments. We also can consider obedience through the lens of faith. Hebrews 1, 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so it's only through faith and by faith that you can actually obey God's commands. And so we see in all these ways, all three birthmarks of the believer are deeply interwoven. You cannot have one without the others. Recall John's purpose in his writing. Why has he brought these to mind? Why has he focused on these birthmarks? The purpose is to assure the believer of salvation. We'll see this in Two, two sermons ahead, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes to encourage, to assure believers. And then he builds on this in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What does he mean by saying that his commandments are not burdensome? I think it's worth taking some time to explore this question at some length because it's not immediately obvious. Is John saying that obedience is easy? It's just a walk in the park? It takes no effort at all? I think things are more complex than that. I'm sure you know that by your own experience. So what does he mean? We get our first clue by considering how Jesus denounced the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This verse, Jesus is using the very same word used in 1 John 5, 3, heavy burdens, burdensome laws. Clearly, the approach that the Pharisees took to the law made these commandments burdensome. 
And yet Jesus, he did not relax the law one bit for believers. You call in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount how he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not relax the law, but rather deepens it as he focuses it, applying it to the heart as we see in Matthew chapter 5. He even concludes that chapter, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If Jesus doesn't relax the law, how is it that he can say, as we read earlier in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The key to understanding the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is found in that key word he says, I've come to fulfill, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He is in that yoke with us. He is carrying the load. The fact that Jesus has fully kept the law on our behalf completely transforms God's commandments for us. We do not keep God's commandments in some futile attempt to establish our own righteousness or to eternal, or if it were possible to somehow earn eternal life by our own merits. Rather, we rest in the finished work of Christ. We trust in his perfect sacrifice for our sins through which we are forgiven every transgression of the law. Does that mean we throw the law out the window? No. Out of gratitude for his grace and out of love for God, we do pursue obedience to God's commands. Works-based salvation is burdensome. That's what the Pharisees taught. But gospel-driven Obedience motivated by gratitude and love for God, that changes everything. Not only is Christ keeping the law for us, he also pours out his Holy Spirit upon us to renew us, to sanctify us from within. And though although God's law is weighty, it's not a heavy burden, it is not burdensome to us because God gives us the strength He gives us the motivation to obey. And though it is not burdensome, it does not mean it is easy. Remember how Jesus also said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Matthew 16. Obedience is costly. It is hard But it is not burdensome, because for the believer, whatever we lose for Christ in this life, we gain back even more in the here and now, and as he says, a hundredfold in the world to come. 
Here I think we can be helped by the analogy of marriage, which of course is itself a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Would you say that keeping your marriage vows, loving your spouse, are these a burdensome requirement of marriage? Of course, taking vows means limitations. It means focusing all your love on one person for the rest of your life. We also understand that our vows are the guardrails which actually give life and that protect the intimacy of a marriage. They are not burdensome requirements because we know that by pursuing our spouse in love, we will find joy in marriage. And of course, the same is true in our relationship with God. The more we grow in our obedience, the more we know the joy of fellowship with the triune God. And we know that his commandments are given for our good. We know that when we choose obedience, we choose life. Again, that's not to say it's always easy. We are still sinners battling our remaining indwelling sin. And obedience is certainly not the path of least resistance. We must take up our cross and die to ourselves daily. And we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we are assured that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Obedience is the way of life. It is the way of blessing and joy. And so we confess with John, God's commandments are not burdensome. Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. And John builds on the case for why God's commandments are not burdensome in verses 4 and 5. He says, it's by faith we overcome the world. He says this three times in a row with slight variations in these verses. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Here when John speaks of the world, he is referring to the kingdom of this world. He's referring to sinful mankind in this present evil age set in rebellion against God. And he says through faith we overcome this world. Notice also the subtle Subtle shift of tenses in verse 4. He first says that we, present tense, overcome the world. We are overcoming the world. But then he also says in the past tense, we have overcome the world. Our faith has overcome the world. This victory is both certainly accomplished, and yet it continues throughout our lives. And he says it one more time, verse 5. And this is in the form of a rhetorical question. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer to this question is no one. Only those of faith overcome the world. This is the only way to overcome the world because, in fact, by faith, it says in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We've already seen this theme of overcoming the world twice in John's letter. Back in chapter 2, he spoke of overcoming the evil one. In chapter 4, verse 4, he wrote, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In both times in those passages, I pointed out, it's we overcome because Jesus has overcome for us. 
As he said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we should ask, what does this victory look like? Helps us to remember what it looks like according to the Hall of Fame of Faith, which we read in Hebrews 11. Here we have listed all those who overcame the world by faith. And yet their victory didn't often lead to glory in this life. Hebrews describes the victory of the faith of the patriarchs in this way. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Their victory over the world was still living in the world, but not of the world. Setting their eyes in faith on the world which is to come. This is we look at those who overcame faith, uh, overcame by faith before us. Most of all, we look not just to those in Hebrews 11, but we look to the victory of Jesus Christ. What did his victory look like? He suffered first. Then came glory in the resurrection and ascension, and he will come in glory when he returns on the last day. And so we too are called in faith to suffer with him now in order that we might be glorified with him, Romans eight seventeen. Victory by faith means death first, then resurrection, then glory. You also recall how Paul spoke of our victory over the world in Christ in the closing verses of Romans 8. There, instead of using the basic Greek word for victory, which John uses, that word you'll recall is Nike, Paul uses the intensified hyper-Nike. No, in all these things, we are hyper-Nike. We are super-conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how we overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that our lives in the present are easy. In fact, we know that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And it does mean that we equip ourselves with the whole armor of God. And by faith, we extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Christ, by the Spirit, equips us with everything we need to overcome the evil world which surrounds us. But to do this, you must hold fast to Christ in faith. That means trusting him. Not trusting yourself, not trusting in your own strength, but depending on Christ, trusting in his power that is at work within you. It means using the means of grace that he has given us. It means resting on him daily in prayer. 
It means feeding on his word daily to give us the spiritual nourishment that we need to walk through this wasteland. It means gathering with the saints every Lord's Day that we might be built up by the preaching of the word and the sacraments. We live as strangers and exiles in this world. But in Christ, by faith, we overcome. Let me sum up what we've seen in our passage this evening. God is the one who grants the new birth. And with it, we see the three inseparably interwoven birthmarks of everyone who has been born again. Faith, love, and obedience. By these birthmarks, you know that you have been born again. These are gifts of God. You receive them from him. Yet we are called to cultivate them, to grow in them. And then it's by faith, faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, that we overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Shall we pray? Our great God, we thank you for these reassuring words from 1 John this evening, this word for you, from you for us tonight. Lord, we thank you for the new birth that you grant to all your chosen ones, to each that you call to yourself, and that with it you give these birthmarks. Lord, may we see these in our lives. May we cultivate and grow in them, and so grow in our assurance of your love and our assurance of your eternal salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that it is by faith that we persevere in the trials of this life. Lord, strengthen that faith within us. Strengthen us to face all the trials that you may bring according to your good plan for us. And may we be reassured always that because we are super conquerors through him who loved us, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this great grace, and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.